Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. Also, I figured you deal with this stuff every day. Like it's as comfortable for me to get up here and talk about teeth as it is for you to talk about your like specialty realm, which is the, the world of insurances. But what's funny, Sean, you know, and I pulled up uh, your guys's website on Treelor Heisel was looking at all the different insurance products. It's kind of not overwhelming, but it's interesting to see the monstrous list of different like not products, but different types of insurances, which is something we're going to talk about. But it's mm-hmm. um it's there's a reason why this topic is so um uh, you know complex and why you kind of need somebody that really knows what they're talking about because it's it's a it's a deep topic that you as you said earlier before we got going a lot of different opinions on so i'm kind of excited to like hear it from you and kind of break down some of these different like philosophies different ways to go about insurances i don't know we got so much to talk about but i'm very excited and i appreciate you coming on the podcast sean thank you yeah awesome happy to do it there is a long list and it does get confusing. So, and I love it. I'm a geek out over it. So, so, uh, you know, we'll just dive right in. I, I, I don't mess around. We're going to get right after it. So the, what I wanted to do with this exercise, I guess, before we get going, I'll ask a little bit about your background. Um, I, I know a lot of pediatric dentists are going to be familiar with your company, um, just from different, like the AAPD event, which was a couple months ago, uh, some of those things, but, um, do you mind before we, before we dive in, tell me a little bit more about yourself and the company and the background behind tree and Heisel. I don't know a lot about it, but tell me more about yourself and the company. Yeah. So I am vice president of business development and been with tree and Heisel now for 22 years, actually. And really I started my career in healthcare. I was, um, basically a caseworker for a group of physiatrists who help people with disabilities return to work, you know, into life. And I worked with traumatic brain injury. And I saw financial devastation when an executive had a youth stroke and they weren't taking care of their finances properly. Um, when I was in healthcare, I went towards the path of becoming a, get my executive MBA and, and hopefully becoming a, um, you know, a CEO of a hospital. But I looked around at everybody that was doing that, they were pretty unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was looking for a way to help people, but also, you know, really help them in a different way. And that's when I found Trelor and Heisel in that they have a very niche market in that they work exclusively in medical dental. And I would say over 90% of the clients are dental specialists, actually. Mm-hmm. And they really are concerned about making sure that if things don't go as planned, that you're protected, as well as helping pediatric dentists create and accumulate wealth, right? So it was a great fit for me. I love the way that they were set up. I love the history of the firm. Um, you know, Trader and Heisel has been in business for over 60 years. Uh, they're endorsed by multiple national dental specialty associations. I think that really speaks to our reputation in the industry. If you look at these esteemed, respected uh, dental specialty associations, you know, Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, the uh, Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons, the the endodontists, and so on and so forth, I think it really puts a, a, an explanation point on where that we fit in in the industry to have the respect and endorsement to provide services to the membership, you know, and then to be able to also 
provide so many different areas and solutions from the personal insurances like the life and the disability, auto, home, health insurance, that type of stuff, to the professional coverages like the malpractice and the business insurances and the and those things, as well as helping people invest in investment portfolios. But more than anything, always looking at it from a comprehensive financial planning perspective. Um, just great culture, uh, a great approach that's very client-centric, and it really speaks to the heart of what I always wanted to do, which was help people and protect them from that financial ruin that I saw when I was in my position in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So uh, show my background and why I love it. I love it here so much. Yeah, that's helpful. W- would you say most of your clients are the younger side, like younger pediatric dentists, or do, or you know, does your do your services cater to older, more established pediatric dentist practice owners, or do you guys have a pretty wide range of like you get a nice blend of young, old associates, practice owners, like a nice variety of pediatric dentists? Yeah, you know, we we've been in business, like I said, for over sixty years, um, and we're national. And we have over 22,000 clients. So we're going to have a cross section of all walks of life, you know, from a dental, fourth year dental student that wants to pick up some basic insurances to someone that's in retirement phase right now. And we're helping them figure out how to navigate these current waters and create an income stream. So it's all across the board. Very cool. Well, uh, okay. So let's, let's get back into it. Uh, nice to have a little bit of background there. What I wanted to do was kind of step through a typical career path of a pediatric dentist. I'm kind of basing this a bit off my own experience. Um, but I'm just going to kind of walk us through like, this is a typical career path. And then we kind of say, okay, this is going to be the first insurance you need. And then we sort of break it down and ask some questions there. Um, going from a young pediatric dentist that just gets their license, gets that sheet of paper, all the way up to an established practice owner, big practice, lots of employees, more risk, more leverage, and what kind of insurance is coming to play mm-hmm. then. So, um, so you know, a lot of the listeners are younger pediatric dentists or residents or even a few dental school students. Um, let's say you got a D4 that's really ambitious, wants to be a pediatric dentist and um, graduates, gets into a residency program. Um, so you're not out in private practice, you're still in an academic setting. Uh, you know, what kind of things are we thinking about for that pediatric dentist that calls you and say, hey, what kind of things do I need to be thinking about now, maybe in terms of like a, a disability insurance? Uh, let's let's start with a pediatric dentist, mm-hmm. a female that maybe is not married, single, doesn't have kids. So we're not thinking in terms of maybe life quite yet. So uh, maybe a disability come to mind, but what kind of things are we thinking about at that stage in a career? So we're talking about a, a pediatric dental resident that is um, – in their residency program and trying to get their ducks in a row mm-hmm. about what they have to take care of financially. Mm-hmm. I think they have to be really aware of what their debt load is and do some education about what a debt repayment strategy might look like eventually. A lot of stuff that we're going to talk about is going to be, um, we'll take care of that once there's more cash flow. But I'd like to have, we're very educational on our process. Um, and we'll talk about things that we'll want to know what your cash position is, right? Because one of the first things once you're making some money is to make sure we have a great emergency fund. Can't really do much about that when you're a resident, you have a you know, more modest income, but we wanna make sure that it's always a habit that you have some type of cash position if you can, right? Disability insurance, of course, is paramount. Um, we're gonna sit down and talk about what you're able to have, you know, ideally. I, when I make a recommendation for disability insurance, 
I have to think about the real, the very real possibility of you calling me and saying that you're not going to be able to work. Right. So we're going to talk about the the premier standard of coverage for you because disability insurance presumably is covering your largest asset, right? I mean, there's no asset that can compare to your future income stream as a pediatric dentist. And there's all kinds of barriers of entry to get there. It's so hard to become a pediatric dentist, so hard to get into the residency program. I mean, you know the challenges. It's it's really incredible and impressive when someone gets into these programs. Um, And because of that, because of that specialized training, you're able to make great income and it's not really easy to replicate it you know someone says to me that they're making six seven eight hundred thousand dollars as a pediatric dentist whatever the number is um and if they can't do that that they can replicate it it's not easy to make that money Mm. right so if you're able to finish your residency program you'll never get to that income right and you still have a lot of potentially debt and everything else so we've lost that future So I'm going to talk in terms of what's the most disability insurance you can get as a resident. And then we need to have a discussion about what that costs. And if that is not within your your cash flow, you know, and you can't budget for that, then we're going to step back and say, well, what can we fit in? Because it's, it's really important that we at least get a baseline. And then we have a foundation that we can build on upon graduation when you start to make more money. Mm. So, you know, Disability insurance, if your health changes, you can't get it. It would be really detrimental if you couldn't get it. So I'm going to really encourage them to get some amount in some way as a resident. Maybe not the full amount. I want to show them that because it's really important to, that if you call me that you know that you could have that. And a lot of residents can and do do that. They can afford it and they do get the most that they can possibly obtain as a resident. But at the end of the day, we really want to make sure you just have a baseline if you can't afford the, the premier amount to protect your future. So um, when we get into other discussions outside of disability insurance, um, you know, we want to do some education on malpractice because that's one of the first things I have to make a decision on upon graduation. Like I said, emergency fund, want to talk about renter's insurance and uh, if you're running um, as well as auto, Um, maybe life insurance if there's a need, you know, it's all very need based and the needs are if you have a family to take care of, if you, are going to get a practice loan to buy into a practice, or if um, you're going to be a partner in practice. Those are the three major needs. And the other one is if you're concerned about your insurability changing. So with life insurance, we'll talk more about, hey, these are the three needs. You may not have them now, but it's likely you'll have at least one, if not all three, in the near future. So now we need to see if we should prioritize that because if your health changes, you might not be able to get it, which will preclude you from having those opportunities later. Um, so a lot of education and then of course the discussion on student loans and uh, you know we also talk a lot about how um, independent contractor versus W-2 and how cash might you know taxes might affect your income and what and really to understand cash flow I think as a resident when when we're sitting down we want to talk about all those things and flesh them out because we know you haven't been exposed to them that much um, and give you a a realistic picture of what it might look like in your first couple years when you're actually making money what your responsibilities are. Um, We really can't do too much for you besides basic disability and life insurance if you need it. A lot of other stuff's taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. Does that Uh, make sense? Yeah, it does. I had a question, Sean, on the student loan thing that I I don't know the answer to. Have you had Mm -hmm. a situation, are you familiar, if you're a 
um, younger dentist and you've got a pile, big old mountain of student loans, say you've got, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in student, federal student loans, or maybe we, I could ask this as federal and private and you get injured, like, you know, a serious injury, like you lose mm-hmm. a limb, a hand, um, you know, some sort of really life altering accident where you can no longer do dentistry. I think most listeners know that student loans are not, you know, uh, federal student loans are not bankruptable. You're still stuck with them, but are, have you seen any, um, you know, how do you factor in student loans with a disability? Are you still stuck with that mountain of $400,000 in student loans? If you get injured and you're screwed and you got to figure out how to pay it off, or are there certain situations, extreme situations where the federal government will with a lot of paperwork and headache somehow forgive some of that? How does that work? So where we really approach it from a protection standpoint is some of the disability policies now have a feature on them that help to pay back student loans if you're disabled. Mm. Um, that really has been one, a recent development because it is an exposure. You know, um, forgiveness I think is very is very very stringent and very. There's not a lot of opportunity to have forgiveness um, of uh, of your student loans. I mean, death, federal loans would be forgiven. Disability typically, um, they're going to still be a requirement to be paid back at some level. Okay. You know. Okay. Yeah. So we're trying to build into the disability policy something that helps to pay that back. Okay. So better to be prepared on the front end and not, not bank on, okay, if I get disabled, mm-hmm. I won't have to pay this back. You're better off being prepared on that, that standpoint, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so then I guess while we're talking on disability, you know, that's, that's a big one that, you know, gets a lot of discussion on uh, younger dentists at that stage. Um, you know, mm-hmm. let's break down disability insurance a little bit more. Uh, what are some common companies like, you know, different, you know, you hear of different, like a handful of different big players because everybody really harks on you want your, you know, true own occupation um, coverage as like a pediatric dentist. Mm-hmm. So if you can't do pediatric dentist, but you could still teach or do something else that they'll still pay you that benefit while, um, you know, working elsewhere. So I was, I was curious if you could touch on that. And then what are some of the major companies that offer that product? And then some to maybe be cautious of, you know, if, if somebody's talking to you and say this company, you know, company X, Y, and Z says that they're true ONOC, but they're not, you know, I'm just curious if there's, what are the good key players in the disability sure. industry and what, what are not? Sure. I think there's two uh, litmus tests that you start with. And that is when you're looking at a contract and, you know, you'll keep your disability until you're financially independent. I hear some people say that, you know, the reality is you won't keep your disability past age 50. I'd like you to go and talk to some 50 year olds right now in this market and ask them with their assets being down tremendously, if they feel comfortable dropping their disability insurance, their answer is going to be no. Um, and I've spoken to so many of our, of our specialists that are financially um, independent. They're working cause they love it. They're good to go from a retirement. And now they're like in their late fifties and sixties. And I say, you know, we can ratchet this back or drop it. And they're like, I locked into this when I was in my thirties. I'm more than likely ever need to use it. I'm not dropping this until I hang it up, right? So I think we have to have some perspective. Um, oftentimes the planning doesn't go well uh, or as, as we envisioned and you, you need to keep it or when you, you're sort of not going to drop it whenever your assets are down, you know, 30% um, because you're concerned about them rebounding. So I say that because you really want to have a disability contract that the rules won't change until, until retirement. If you, there's a good chance you're going to keep it until you retire. So let's just have a contract that's called non-cancelable guaranteed renewable, which means the premium can st- is, is going to be contractually 
provided, so it can't change according to the contract, and the rules on how you get paid if you're disabled won't change, right? Um, then next, you mentioned the own occupation. Well, if you put those two tests on the industry, you're down to about six companies that provide those, those policies. And then when you go a little bit further, I like to make sure that we're evaluating company ratings. Um, you know, insurance companies um, are evaluated. Are they, they let other evaluation firms come in and look at their books and they provide a financial rating. And that financial rating really is about based on what we're seeing in your books, uh, what is the likelihood that you'll be in a good financial position to pay claims in the future, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you can go and look up um, what's called a Comdex rating, which is a combination of all these different rating companies out there. And it puts it into a really user-friendly number from zero to 100, 100 being you know, the best. And I would suggest that you want to get a company that's rated 90 or above. You know, we want an eight, an eight company. And that narrows it down to just a handful that the contract can't change. The, the rating is very, very good. So they're a strong financial company and they have their own occupation. Um, you know, we're pretty independent in, in the companies that we work with. So I'd rather give, if it's okay, the criteria of what you should ask your advisor when you're looking at these policies than really tell you companies per se. I think it's much more effective to edu educate the consumer about what they should ask and what the answer should be than to tell them stay away from this company or that company. Um, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So then if if somebody's shopping around, speaking with their advisor, trying to figure out what disability policy is right for them, is there a, is there a rough like, obviously we know disability insurance as a dentist is pretty expensive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is there a, a rough rule of thumb that, you know, I sometimes wonder if you see like there's a too good to be true, like is it, you know, good disability insurance is probably going to cost you in the realm of, you know, so many hundred dollars per like thousand dollars worth of, of monthly benefit. You, you may not have that math in front of you. I'm just curious if you, if you have any uh, comments on like cost. You know, I think, yeah, this is what really, I don't really love about my industry is that when you build a disability policy that this segment of, of what we do you can, there's so many moving parts that advisors can tweak them different ways to make it look like it's less expensive, but seem like it's the same type of coverage, right? It's really, really difficult for the consumer to get an apples to apples comparison. Um, and what I recommend is you not only get an illustration, right? So you can look at it side by side from the different companies, but you can also get something called a specimen policy. And a specimen policy is just that, it's a sample policy, and it shows you the language of all the different features that you're looking at buying. And what I always say about my, my industry is that uh, if you're talking to an advisor and they're just telling you how something works, right, uh, I really would suggest that you ask to read it together with them, right, because there's a lot of noise and a lot of confusion. And... Start there and make sure that you have an apples to apples comparison um, as close as possible to the to the contracts, um, so that you can really make a, an educated decision. And you know, a really good advisor will have no trouble showing you going through that list. You know, of the non cancelable guaranteed renewable, the own occupation, showing you the highest rated companies, 
and then just showing you, this is why I'm recommending one over the other, because let's read the executives of the contract and, and I'll tell you why it's so important that this needs to be stronger, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, as far as price, one thing for sure with price, you're going to be better off if you if you lock into your coverage before you leave your residency um, because there's discounts that are associated with you being classified as a resident for some advisors. Like we have significant discounts um, that if you apply while you're a resident, you that discount is, is on that policy. And then it, it's often a, a discount applied to your future purchases when you buy coverage in the future as your income goes up. Mm-hmm. And it's significant, very significant. So I strongly encourage you to look at your options before you leave your, 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 your training programs. Yeah. Um, it, it can save you so much money. Yeah. I've uh, another thing that I've found to your point, you know, most dentists, including myself, will lock in that policy and residency. Then you get out a year or two, your income goes up a little bit and you say, okay, I can buy a little bit more disability insurance. I think most, most pediatric dentists understand it's important to have good disability insurance. Like not a lot of arguing that. So you, mm-hmm. you buy a little bit more and then you make a little more money, you buy a little bit more and then eventually you, you kind of max out. But the thing that I found always a little bit frustrating about disability insurance is eventually like where I'm at now, I think I've got three or four different policies. I've got my little residency policy, you know, four or $5,000 a month benefit. I've got and then another like $2,000 one. And then my recent one, which was like an $8,000 increase or something. So it just seems like, it, you know, it gets it really, it's just a paperwork thing, but it's, um, it's too bad. Maybe uh, it's just my company that I have, but it seems like sometimes it's a lot to just keep track of. Cause you got three or four different premiums you're paying throughout the year. It'd be nice if they somehow, maybe some companies do that, but a way to lump them all together. So you're just paying one big check once a year for all yeah. your disability. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, First thing is when you're in residency and if you, you know, if you're ambitious and plan to own practices or you see yourself having a, you know, a high income, we would strongly encourage that you would lock into two disability contracts with, you know, two different companies while you're in residency because you're, you're, you're young, you're, you're healthy or as healthy as you're probably going to be, right? And if you get the two companies, that's all you need. Each company provides you the option to buy more as your income goes up without going through a medical exam. And that gets you up to, you know, th- over $30,000 a month of coverage, depending upon what your income goes to in the future. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, whenever, you know, if you, if, when you go to, when you go apply and, and go to increase your coverage, it's called a future increase option or a benefit update riders, number of different names for it. You want to know that when I go to buy more, Will I get the same contract that I initially bought, right? Or is there a possibility that when I go to buy more that I'm going to buy whatever contract they're offering at that time? Well, many companies will, when you go to buy more, just say, yes, it'll be the same contract. And they just raise, they give you an amendment and they raise your premium for that. And now your policy is just there. And then some companies will send you a new policy uh, based on when you bought it, and then you have these different bills. So, so that's a big difference from a from a management perspective. It's and also from a, a policy perspective. It's nice to know that the contract will be the same when you go to buy it in the future. And in that instance, the premium is consolidated and it's all the same original policy. It's just gotten bigger. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, yeah, so definitely consider the two companies in the beginning and ask about that option to buy more. You should be asking, when I go to buy more, is it, is it the same, same con contract that I initially purchased or will it be whatever they're offering at the time I purchase it? Mm -hmm. The uh, the only other question that I, I had that I wanted to ask on disability before we we move on was as far as a maximum allowed like a maximum benefits allowable you know some pediatric dentists that are you know own a big successful practice are going to be making a lot of money where their income's going to get beyond the threshold of what they can get coverage for um, so you know if you're making five six eight however many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year I correct me here, but there's a cap on the, uh, the maximum amount of benefit you can receive and all these disability companies somehow talk to each other. So, you know, you can, isn't there a cap where like the most disability insurance you can buy is like 26 or 30,000 a month or something, but just, is there, is there a maximum benefit to that? You know, depending upon, they call them occupation classes, depending upon if you're a specialist or general dentist, it could be up to $35,000, but you know, the, the, it's the replacement ratios that we're talking about. You know, if, you, if you're making, um, let's say, a million dollars, after paying taxes, you're probably making somewhere around $50,000 a month in cash, right? Well, you're only going to be able to get at that income somewhere around between twenty-five dollars and $30,000 a month of coverage to replace that. So what we... What we're looking at doing is, you know, you, you, you need to make sure that you're, you're fully uh, insured because that's a big loss if you can't work, mm -hmm. right? A million dollars, $50,000 a month in cash after paying taxes and a disability insurance, if you didn't deduct the premium, it's going to come to you without being taxed. We're not even, you know, we're, we're getting what, maybe 50% of what your cash to cash income. So you want to up it up and stay fully insured. And then that's what the non-cancelable guaranteed renewable stuff that I talk, talked about. For some of our doctors that are making um, significantly more than that, then we're looking at going to like a Lloyd's of London and filling in the gap. And it's available when it's out there and it just works a little bit differently with, with you know, those type of policies. Every five years, you might have to go through medical underwriting to keep them or every three years when you want to go above that limit. But there's a lot of uh, specialists out there that need additional coverage above and beyond that, that 30 or $35,000 a month max that's out there. Cool. Yeah. Maybe a good, uh, a good argument for if you just keep your living expenses a little bit, you know, live, if you're making 50,000 a month, maybe if you can live on $30,000 a month to, to get you by where if you, I, I don't know, might be a, a little bit of an argument, like don't live on every single dollar that you make and maybe have a little cushion there. But um, just for the sake of time, let's. Uh, no, let's no, for sure. No, I mean, even with that, though, the reality is that let's talk about that. Hopefully the person that's making the that much money is saving a significant amount. Right. But the likelihood is that if they're making 50,000 and they're saving 20,000 a month, you know, inevitably your lifestyle grows a bit with your income. So even with saving all that money, you're still, your spending is still going to be naturally higher at that level. So if we insure you fully, maybe we're insuring your, your, maybe we're insuring your actual living expenses, but now we've lost all this, everything that you're saving. We, we're no longer able to fund those vehicles any longer to create the level of wealth that you were hoping to create. So no matter, we're always going to try to stay as close to fully insured with disability insurance until we get to the point that we can look. And if everything came together, we say, you're good to go. 
you're in a position that you, you, you don't need this any longer because you've created enough uh, of a nest egg that you can create the replacement of your income if you're unable to work through your assets, right? And we're working towards that all the time. It's just, you know, you have to feel comfortable with that and, and you have to feel comfortable that the market's gonna keep the assets at a certain level to pro provide that. Um, and, uh, but we recommend it all the time. If you get close to that level, we're, we're, we're suggesting you ratchet it back. It's just really, really hard to justify not being fully funded because with disability insurance, because there's such a gap, they, they underinsure you so much at the higher income levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of good thoughts there. So then if we say this pediatric dentist, uh, this thought, um, thought experiment that we're doing, maybe we got our disability insurance in place and that pediatric dentist comes back to you and says, Hey, I'm getting married. Um, or I just got married and we're expecting our first baby coming along. I've got now a family, you know, wife and kids I got to take care of. Maybe we bought a house and we starting to accumulate a few assets that first year or two out. Um, I really need to be thinking about, you know, taking care of my family in case something happens to me. And they say, Sean, what kind of life insurance things do I need to be thinking about at this age? Is it, do I need to, I hear people talking about term policies and about whole life policies. Um, what, what kind of, what kind of things should I be thinking about there? Yeah, sure. So, you know, early on in your career and you're starting to, to really get moving with paying down debt and trying to start to accumulate some some income and you might really be interested in, in um, investing in your practice more. Right. Uh, you have some to build your business up. Um, we're going to really focus on term life uh, early in your career for sure. And term life is just, hey, I, there's a term period I keep it for. And it's a small premium and a very big death benefit. And I think that we need to talk about um, the amounts. I really think that people don't understand how much money is needed to take care of their loved ones in the event that they, they pass away early, right? And a good rule of thumb to kind of give you some perspective is if I have a million dollars and I die and it goes to my wife and she invests it and wants to pull it out every month, she's got about $4,000 a month to live off of. And with different market cycles as it's invested, that will last for about 30 years, right? So we got to think in terms of, well, how much are you making? And then what are you providing to the family? What other assets are available if you pass away? And the insurance needs to fill that gap, right? So I think that a lot of people are, are really underinsured when it comes to the life insurance. Uh, I just had a call, and I'm pretty passionate about it with all this stuff because we get the calls. And I just had a call you know, one of my clients has been client for 20 years, died prematurely, and we're, the wife was really, you know, understandably upset. But I got to say, hey, you know what, you, you've got nearly $5 million of life insurance here to help take care of those concerns that you have, like keeping, you have the business you have to worry about, keeping the payroll, and then find a good way, good way to make sure those employees are still employed and then having the transition filling in the gap of what would have, would have been so saved in retirement, you know, all the things that, that you'd be concerned about if you lost a spouse. And you can, you can make those decisions in a more calculated, prudent way because you have this immediate cash infusion uh, by making sure you plan properly with the life insurance. So, you know, early in the career, a, a good baseline is probably 10 times income um, early in, on your, in your career. Um, when you read any of the, the different, uh, you know, books on this type of stuff, it might say eight to 12. 
but that's where we'd start. And then we start to talk about what does that mean and how does that look and what does that provide as an income to your family if something happens. But term life is definitely the tool because of the, the reduced costs. Now, what I will say is that with affluent clients um, that have a lot of opportunities to save, but not that many tax efficient ways to save, right? Um, there is a component and there is a, there is a, an argument to consider having permanent life or whole life in, in part of your portfolio. But we wouldn't really talk about instituting that type of tool until you are, you know, you have your emergency fund. You, you know that you're, if you want to stage yourself for a practice, then we need to make sure that cash flow goes towards staging yourself for a practice. So you're, you're in the employment that you want to be in. Mm-hmm. You're fully funding your retirement plan. You're doing additional investments outside of the retirement plan, and you're looking for somewhere to put safe money um, that provides a permanent death benefit, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be called whole life, or there's other versions of it. But you know, it, it can be a very valuable tool for your safe money once we've checked a lot of those boxes and we're looking for more, you know, non-correlated assets uh, that won't react like the market does. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so both are very, very good topics to, to discuss with your advisor. Just early on, we're going to definitely uh, lean towards the term life. I will say, though, that if we put term life in your portfolio, I want to make sure that uh, one of the policies is able to be converted to like a whole life if it's appropriate in the future without going through a medical exam. And that just means that, hey, you went through the medical exam to get that term life policy. Let's say it's appropriate from a planning perspective to have whole life. A conversion is you just submit paperwork. There's no medical exam, and now it turns into that type of policy. Mm-hmm. So to have, you know, just I really want you to have options. And by having term life early with a policy that's convertible uh, to permanent, you've got an option now if it's appropriate in the future to pull that trigger and implement that into your plan. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this topic's a, a little bit more personable f- for me. And I don't know if I talked to talk to you about this, um, mm-hmm. prior to the podcast, but you know, so my, my dad was a pathologist, um, MD pathologist, and he, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of went through a similar track. You guys work with a lot of doctors, but he picked up, um, you know, disability insurance and, and, uh, and, a, and he, he had a term and a whole life policy from my recollection, started a term early and whole life, um, did his whole career. He got to 55. His goal was to retire early. He was really, you know, pr- um, frugal with his money, saved a lot. He was a saver and investor and really healthy guy, took care of himself. Well, at 55, uh, like six months to a year before he was set to retire, he started having some stomach pain, went in and had some scans mm. done and uh, ended up, they, the doctor there said, he, you know, you got stage four bladder cancer and it was malignant. And so he oh started, my. yeah, it was crazy. It was a crappy. And his, his dad, my grandpa had the same cancer, oh. died of the same cancer. So, so something goes on in the family there, but regardless, you know, he started doing chemo and, uh, he made it about a year and a half and passed away at 56, which was a crappy deal, but it was a good lesson oh, wow. for me to kind of learn the things that he did. Right. You know, I, I kind of got to learn a lesson from that, but, um, mm-hmm. Know that from a disability side, even though he didn't need it, this goes back to that first point that you made. Um, you know, even though he didn't need the disability insurance, he had a big nest egg. He was set. He was ready to retire. You know that um, that extra year that he battled cancer, he was able to you know bring in a tax free benefit and have have some income there to pay for medical expenses and everything. Um, 
So that was really nice to have that in place. And then his term, uh, his term life policy had expired and, um, you know, the whole life he, you know, when he passed away actually ended up having a good chunk of money and my, and my mom was able to use some of those benefits. So, you know, obviously this is kind of an unusual or, you know, just not a super common situation, but he was able to use both of those, those things to his benefit. And it really helped the family out through all some of the, some of this tough stuff. So kind of learned some lessons from that. And, um, it's obviously kind of a bummer how it ended, but, uh, it was mm-hmm. nice to, to see those, you know, a good example case study of like why it's important to have some of these insurances around for when the unfortunate things happen. Yeah. It's sorry to hear that. And, and you know, it, it's, it's really why I do what I do. And I, I think that, you know, you, you can spreadsheet things and you can do all these models, but life's not a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're it's just not. And like I, when someone says, well, buy this policy because it, when you're, when they're talking to you when you're 30, because when you're 55, you won't need it anymore. Well, how do you know that? And how do you know that the person's going to be comfortable letting that go? You know, they just like that extra security blanket. It's not a spreadsheet. And, you know, like the, 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 that your dad was really young. I'm sorry to hear that. But if, if you think about um, me and my planning, and having something for me that makes sense, which was permanent life, is that I'm likely to pre I'm likely to die before my wife. But boy, that death benefit is an infusion into infusion into her pot of money later in life, so that she has a safety and security there mm-hmm. is really important to me, right? As well as all the other benefits that come with it. But there's so many different reasons to talk about these. That's why they're out there. They're tools to be used in the appropriate way. And, you know, we just hope that you get hooked up with an advisor that looks at it um, always from your best interest, you know, mm-hmm. and that's very client-centric. Uh, Sean, I, I had a, a couple more things I wanted to, to keep to keep plugging through. So, you know, we, we just spent a little bit of time talking about life insurance, which was great. Maybe this, uh, mm-hmm. your pediatric dentist, you've got some life insurance set up now, you know, as you said, a lot of them are underinsured and you, they work with you guys and you got them up to where they need to be to have good coverage to replace income in case something happens. Um, malpractice would probably be something that would come in here as you, you get out in a private practice and start working. And mm-hmm. I know that that, that can be, um, kind of a, a complex one, but, uh, you know, having just gone through a bunch of malpractice increases, I had one or two more specific questions that I might have you shed a little bit of light on. Um, but you know, malpractice insurance. The big one that I wanted to know for pediatric dentist is: Do you think pediatric dentists need to have more or less coverage than a typical dentist? Since you know, granted, we're not placing implants as off, you know, really ever. Wisdom teeth is a fairly uncommon thing. Not doing a lot of endo. Um, but where where I maybe had more questions was mm-hmm. it's becoming more and more common to do in office general anesthesia and do higher levels of sedation with an anesthesiologist in in office. For so. Sure. I, just up my 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 limits to like what I write down three and six three million occurrence six million aggregate. I, I don't know if it's going to do anything, but my thought was if you're you know with us doing you know the trend in our industry is to do more heavier sedation in office. I'm just curious what thoughts you have mm-hmm. as far as what what kind of coverages are unique to a pediatric dentist in that regard. You know, this is just what I say and how I feel. I, I feel that that. Malpractice insurance is kind of crazy people insurance, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I say that because people are crazy, and you do, especially when you deal with the public, right? And 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 they're really crazy about their kids. And you are death. You are working with 
in circumstances where there's general anesthesia, you're not, you're not, you're not providing that, but you're, you're involved in that, in that, in working on dentistry, whether, whether, you know, under, and in the event something were to happen, it's going to be a pretty severe type of lawsuit. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is a generalization and I look at malpractice as one of those things that's protecting your reputation. If something were to happen, you get a lawsuit and the lawsuit is higher than what your, your protection is. Your only choice is to pay for it out of pocket. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also if you look at your limits and you say, okay, how much more does it cost to increase my limits? It's not directly proportional, meaning that if you pay, I don't know, a thousand dollars for a $1 million policy, it's not $5,000 for a $5 million policy, right? It's more of like a, it's not proportional. It's, it's a little bit of an increase. So, you know, if I'm a pediatric dentist, and I know this varies based on some states, and, but I'm going five, seven, I'm going as high as I can because I know that this is one of the biggest exposures that I have. It's not that much more expensive than the three, five, you know, it's not double the cost or anything. Mm -hmm. And it just gives me the peace of mind to know that if something really does not go as planned, that I'm protecting my personal assets as well as I possibly can, you know, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't recommend that amount for an orthodontist necessarily, or um, I don't think the exposure is the same. I think the biggest thing is, is if you're treating patients, whether under general anesthesia, you know, that's where the biggest risk to me is in, in what you do, because you could have that, you could have that death scenario, right? Mm -hmm. You could have something terrible go wrong, even if not, you're not administrating that, um, and you, but you're involved in the care. So, man, I, I really, when I speak one-on-one -on -one with the pediatric dentist, I walk them through that and show them the different prices between really going to the highest amount versus what you have. And, you know, by and large, when you see that and you put it in perspective, they're bumping it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you see that, um, this might be a common myth that you can, uh, dispel here if, if that's the case or confirm I've, I've heard some people lecture before at residency and other places that you, you know, that you can increase your limits higher and higher and higher. But a lot of times if it's something important and it goes to a court or maybe let's say you don't have a kid die on the table in anesthesia, but a kid swallows a crown and, you know, has to go to the emergency room and have it pulled out and there's medical things, whatever, something where somebody doesn't die, but it's, you know, my parents bring a lawsuit. I've heard that there's an argument for whatever you increase your limit to the majority of the time, the lawyers just try to settle to get that amount. Um, and, and so a lot of times, you know, I've heard people make an argument. I'm not going to be good at this argument because I don't know or can support it, but I've heard some people say you can keep your limits mm -hmm. a little bit lower yeah. because they're going to try to settle every time with, at whatever the maximum limit is to just get the amount of money in the, in the, in the limit where, you know, a lot of times you don't have to pay a ton of money out of pocket. Have you seen that before? Am I totally off or, or shed some light on that for me? You know, I, I've heard that argument. I've spoken with the, with the actuaries and the, and the underwriters. And, you know, when I hear things like a lot of times are as possible that this, you know, what I'm trying to, to think about is, is the crushing thing that could happen. Right. And it's much more likely to me that if you have, Two million and something really bad goes down, and it's a four or five million dollar situation that 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 it could be a much greater concern, right? Mm -hmm. So I understand what they're saying. I just think when you look at the difference in cost between those levels of, like, when you bumped yours up, it wasn't three times the amount that you were paying before, right? Not very affordable. Recently, yep. yep, not bad at all. Mm -mm. Very affordable. So I, I think it's always about what is the cost, 
for the peace of mind. Um, and, you know, all that other speculation about, well, if you go high, they're just going to see you for more. Well, maybe, but if you go low, you might lose a lot more. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just think that when you look at the nominal difference, I, I try to be really pragmatic when we, when we look at these things. Now, if it was 10 times the cost, then we have to really think through it mm-hmm. a bit more. But I, I, the way it's set up and the way those policies operate, negligible increase in costs, tremendously more coverage. And it gives you the peace of mind to know that if um, the big one comes that you have a higher amount of protection. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, you know, I, I think I've, I've gone through this life cycle of a practice owner um, where, you know, you work so hard to build your empire, you have all your patients in this big business that's booming, everything's going great. And you start thinking, okay, what are the things that could take this away from me for this thing that I've worked so hard to build? And that's kind of what I went through about six months ago. It's like, man, what, what are the things that could just like pull out the rug from under me and this all goes away? And that was one of the things that came on the list. And so this goes back to your point, like it's a small investment to make for the peace of mind to make sure that you've got all the coverage you need. So I think a, a lot of, um, uh, really good points there. And the other thing I was just going to comment on that is less of a, a, a numbers thing, but comes up a lot in discussions online is a lot of these malpractice claims seem to be easily prevented with good communication skills. Obviously not the one where the kid has a laryngospasm, they can't rescue and dies on a table, but like small things in clinic, like people just seem to not sue dentists that they really like, you know, if that's a parent that like they've come to your office, you shake their hand, you smile, you communicate, you give them a few minutes of your time and attention and they like you. Like if, if you have a bad outcome, if you explain things well, it, I feel like you're going to be okay. But, um, as you can probably attest to pediatric dentists get really busy. We're hammering all day. We're trying to see 50 and then 60 patients Mm -hmm. a day. And if you just fly in and you're not a good clinician and you're not communicating and something goes wrong, you might shoot yourself in the foot on that end because you're not kind of prioritizing the patient care and they're going to be more likely to maybe sue you if something goes wrong, if you didn't take that time to explain things well. That's a bit of a sidebar, but I don't, you might have a comment on that, but it's just something I've seen. No, I, I tell you what else I would say is that when you're, you really want to know about the accessibility of your malpractice carrier, like if something does not go well and you have to handle something that's sensitive, my suggestion is you take a breath, a breath, call the company and get a risk management consultant and just talk it through, right? And now you're equipped to go into that conversation um, and really handle it at a different level. So I would encourage, you know, when you're thinking about the company that you're working with, ask those questions, you know, my time and need, how quickly can I get somebody on the phone to just debrief a situation so that I can walk into it and handle it uh, in the best way possible? That's, that's a lot of value there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that you're right. If you good relationships, good, good, good um, interaction, good documentation, for mm-hmm. sure. For you sure. Know, uh, all those things are really important. But, you know, sometimes things don't go as planned. And boy, you're by yourself. A lot of, a lot of you are by yourself in that office. Only doctor there um, to have that lifeline, if you will, and be able to have a risk management consultant that you can get in contact quickly so you can you know, had a little, little huddle about it. I think it'd be very helpful. For sure. Well, Sean, I've, I've got, uh, the, the last thing I wanted to kind of pick apart was talking about some, some business owner policy stuff. When you become a seasoned pediatric dentist practice mm-hmm. owner before, before we finish up and kind of crack open that egg, is, is there anything else that I missed or that you wanted to hit on 
on some of these other things or, or sh- could we go ahead and kind of transition to BOP? I just want to make sure I didn't, I didn't skip anything that you needed to, to mention or anything. No, just go with the flow. It sounds good. Whatever is important to you to talk about, I think it's been fun so far. Okay, cool. So, so then let's, let's, I'm thinking of my own life cycle here. I'm out, I'm finished associating. I'm going to start a practice. I want to get this practice going and you start the practice and things are going well. And you think, okay, I need to make sure I'm covered. I guess in case a patient comes in and slips and falls in my waiting room, or if my assistant messes something up, if she's driving uh, to run an errand to the bank and hits an old lady with the, you know, with the shopping cart, like what, what kind of things as a business owner do I need to be concerned about? So then you start thinking about um, a BOP or a business owner's policy and all the components yep. involved in that. Um, and that's a, something I, I've learned a lot about. I bought a, I think a policy through Secura. I wrote down, I was uh, surprised at how expensive it was, but I guess for the amount of things it covers, it, it makes sense because it's, it seems like a lot of these policies are very, um, you know, have a lot of different branches of coverage to them, you know, like some cybersecurity and um, trip and fall coverage mm-hmm. and Light different liabilities and like your property coverage. So maybe, um, I guess, could you maybe start by kind of explaining to people that aren't familiar or practice owners yet, what, it, what all typically is included in a BOP policy? Like what are the components of it? Um, and why maybe it's important to have it as a practice owner? Sure. So BOP is business owners protection. It's a property and casualty policy. First, um, I want to explain there's also something called business overhead expense boe and that's a disability policy designed to pay your practice expenses so sometimes people when i when we sit down and we say do you have a business overhead expense policy um, that if you become disabled it'll reimburse you for practice expenses until you get back or until you can sell your practice they're like oh yeah i have it and really when we talk more and more we end up finding out they don't have it and they actually have business owners protection um, so there's some education that needs to be done there about if that is needed. Business owners protection is that property and casualty insurance. And it really think of it as homeowners for your business, right? Um, whenever you set up your practice, typically the lender is going to tell you what you need to have. And that may be what you went through. Correct. You know, that, yep. Hey, you want to close on your loan. You need to have this. Well, that's a good starting point, but boy, you, you should probably revisit it annually to make sure that that is still what you need and, is, and you're insured properly. So fire damage, you know, physical damage to the space is what the major uh, portion of that coverage is for. So that if you cannot practice in that space because of physical damage, it's going to step in and reimburse you to, to recreate that space. Um, but it really revolves mostly about physical, uh, the physical damage. There's also some general liability on the policy that would include, like, if I came in and I slipped and fell and hurt myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's included. You want to just make sure that you think about if I got special equipment, did I up my limits? Or if I added an operatory or if I made any changes, have I really been diligent to make sure that I've increased my limits if something were to happen. You know, we've had, well, we've had huge, huge losses. We've had, uh, you know, someone open up their practice, you know, million dollar practice, and then the tornado goes right through and tears it apart. And, you know, thank goodness that we had the right amount of coverage on the business owner's protection policy to rebuild that space. And also, you know, if there is physical damage and you can't practice there, there should be some business interruption protection available. 
which helps to take care of uh, you know staff salaries and and those type of things, your loss of income. But it, it all revolves around that 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 loss of the physical space. Um, underneath there, you have your workers' compensation um, that you need to get for your staff. And often I'm asked if doctors need to be on workers' compensation, and I typically say, you know, if, if it really comes down to your health insurance. If you get hurt at work, let's say that you're, we had a doctor that was up on their, on a ladder changing the light bulb in their foyer, fell and hurt their leg. And uh, they went to, to get, you know, medical care and their health insurance deferred to the workers' comp because they were hurt at work, mm -hmm. right? So you really want to ask your health insurance if, if they would be the primary or if they would defer. If, if they defer, then you, you should probably be on the workers' comp. If not, then you have your disability, you have your health insurance. You probably don't need to be insured on the workers' comp. As the, as the doctor. And then the other things that really have started to um, make the news more and more is the employment practice liability insurance that protects you from your employees if they want to sue you for what they think that you might have done something wrong, whether it's harassment or discrimination or what have you. And then data breach and ransomware. We've had some serious claims when it comes to data breach and ransomware. Um, and it's, you know, they can get in, lock up your computer and ask for a ransom and you're just shut down. Or if they do that as well, or just steal all your patient's information, boy, that's a real pickle. So you want to have the right amount of protection. And if you don't look at your policies, most business owners' policies for the data breach and the employment practice liability, baked in, there's a, there is coverage, but it's a very low amount. Mm -hmm. Very low amount. Not enough that you feel comfortable. So you, you really want to look at what that amount is and consider adding additional amounts to the coverage so that you're protected properly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially today, um, in today and age with uh, all the, it seems like this wasn't an issue like, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, but you say that's definitely something that's increased over the last few years is, is seeing more of these rant and cause they can be like substantial amounts of money, right? Like 10, 50, like really large sums of money to get that data back on top of the HIPAA violations that all. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've had claims upward, you know, well over a quarter million dollars for, for ransomware, uh, big time. You know, it shuts down and then the doctor pays the ransom and then files the claim. And then how do we get, how do we un unwind all this? Yeah. Um, so it's a very big risk that we didn't have. You know, when I started 20 years ago, we certainly didn't have that as a risk, mm -hmm. right? But small practices uh, to large practices are a target for sure. And then, you know, other stuff beyond that, uh, you know, you have your individual malpractice. If you have an associate working for you or a partner, you really want to have a um, entity coverage for your, for your malpractice insurance, right? Because if you have an associate working and they get sued, it's likely that you'll get sued, but also your, your business will get sued. So if you're by yourself, it's fine. You share the limits. But if you have more than one doctor practicing in that space, you want to have entity malpractice coverage. And then the other things that when you set up your set up your practice that you you should seriously consider. I mentioned the business overhead expense, which is the disability to keep the practice running. But if you're taking a loan out, um, you know there's something called business loan protection disability insurance. So if you're disabled, the loan is paid back. You then have the business overhead that helps keep the office running, and then you have your individual coverage to keep your home running, right? Mm -hmm. And then Lastly, the life insurance that you might need for a practice loan or a buy-sell agreement. So that pretty much runs the, runs the gamut, I think. I don't think I missed anything for the business insurances. 
um, but they're all really important. And it does seem like a long list, right? But yeah, yeah. There, there's all these exposures. As you know, life gets much more complicated with the more assets you have and the more responsibilities you have. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember this is a, a thing for people starting practices too, is I, I remember I not shocked, but I was surprised at how expensive it was. I got a few different quotes, but I wrote down in my, my show notes here that my business owner's policy was like 3,500 bucks for the year. And then I think I had almost 700 in an umbrella coverage to up some limits on, I think, I don't know, some cybersecurity mm -hmm. and some other, some other as, or I think, as you said, I think I out, outfitted a few more operatories. I got more equipment. So I increased limits there and got some umbrella coverage and then over a grand for workers comp. And that's probably just going to keep going up. But, um, I mean, that's one of those expenses when you first open shop and then the, the, your Wells Fargo bank of America comes to you and says, Hey, you need to have all this coverage. You gotta, that's why it's important to have some cash on hand when you're starting up a practice. Cause that might all come in before you have a lot of loan money to work with. And, and it's not a small expense to write a five or 6,000 yeah. check on some of that stuff. So it's important. That and, and they're getting much better at providing working capital for that, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you, you want to try to avoid taking loans out if, if, you, if, you, if you don't need to. Mm -hmm. And it is great to stage yourself and prepare for some of those expenses. But, you know, it's a cost of doing business. And it's very difficult, I'm sure, when you first open up and you're like, okay, am I going to get some revenue in here? As time goes on, and it becomes a portion of your expenses. And it's, it's, it's much more palatable, right? But mm -hmm. in the beginning, I'm sure it's very overwhelming. Yeah. Sean, I have one last kind of personal related to this topic question, and then I'm, I'm about through the list, but this is sort of related. You were just talking about like BOE coverage, um, like business interruption insurance. Sometimes I struggle with this, you know, knowing what's, you know, you're, you're we're paying so much in all these different insurances and they're important to have, but you're always kind of walking the line of, do I need this coverage? Is this appropriate? And with COVID and, and myself starting during COVID, I've always prioritized having a pretty large emergency mm -hmm. fund you know, pretty well over three months of, of fixed and mm -hmm. even some variable expenses. So I usually keep a six figure emergency fund just because I, I want to be covered. So then sometimes I think to myself, well, do I really need to have a business interruption insurance and an overhead coverage if I, if I'm a, run a lean office and I've got a lot of cash on hand, but then I know some other dentists have made the argument, you know, if you can get uh, you know, just pay the premium to have your business overhead coverage where it's, it's covered for, 90 days and then you got your disability insurance and everything but then you could take that emergency fund cut it down to one month maybe and then take all that extra money and say invest it or or put it into an investment account but sometimes i struggle with knowing what's appropriate to have you know if you have somebody that comes to you and says hey i'm kind of a conservative guy i don't like to be over leveraged i like to keep a lot of cash on hand is it okay if i if i don't go crazy with some of these interruption insurances i, I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that well you know first i would not necessarily encourage you to go down to just a one month of an emergency fund and invest the difference um, just because you never know when you need it and what 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 cycle is the market in right mm -hmm. uh, I, I definitely would say that i like the uh, we like emergency funds we like the three months for the personal and we like to make sure that we have a similar amount um, for the business but it doesn't negate the need for these insurances and 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 here's why you know even with someone that is in their journey of building wealth, if you can't work and you need to take a you know a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever to keep the office running, first it comes out of cash, but then secondly it would come out of investments, and you, you would have to use some of your investments to replenish the cash, right? Mm -hmm. So what does that mean long run? Um, if I'm in my forties and 
I needed to use $300,000 effectively out of my investment portfolio, right, to take care of this exposure. How much have I lost in 25 years if I was able to just keep that money invested mm -hmm. with the time value of money, right? And I think that people don't think that through, think through the, the, the waterfall effect of that. Um, you know, you are working so hard and you're trying to create, um, you know, financial independence, but needing to tap into cash early, um, if you're not able to work, um, that's what it's there for. But it's likely that if it goes beyond that and there's usually some unforeseen expenses, that then you're going to start to, to cash out some investments to replenish the cash and also to take care of that additional exposure. And then you've really lost the ability for that money to grow in the long run to, to help reach that financial independence. It can, it can be, be seriously impactful, much more so than paying, you know, a couple grand for uh, a business overhead and for your your BOP, your business owner protection. Mm -hmm. You know, so I really like to look at this. We want to make sure that we're very prudent with your dollars as it goes towards these, these um, risk management tools. But it is very much a cost of doing business. And if we keep it in that, you know, in that light, and, and that we're covering the bases and making sure you're protected that if you need to use something, we're not having to really go into those other areas. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to work out a lot better in the long run for you. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. That answer, it answers my question. It's probably something I just need to, I need to, that's like the one of the few insurances I feel like I don't have. So I'm, I might, I might look into that a little bit more, but I, I also, I do a lot of stupid things in my spare time, climb tree stands and chainsaw things. And, and, you know, if anybody's going to get injured doing something stupid, it's probably me. So I was like, oh, I should probably crack down and have all the things that I need here. But Sean, this was, uh, this was fantastic. Um, I don't know if there's, if there's anything else I missed, feel free to, to chime in as we wrap up here. Otherwise I'd love to have some contact info. If, um, you know, you guys have, have a big name in the, in the world of dentistry for, for, um, you know, doing these types of things. But if, if we got any listeners that wanted to, maybe say, I don't know if you guys do this, but say somebody wants to show you their coverages and say, Hey, is, is this what I need? Like, do you guys have any suggestions? You know, is, is there a contact info or would that be okay if somebody mm -hmm. got in touch with you to, to review some of that stuff? Yeah. You know, all the time. And, and really we understand how busy you are. And we understand that you probably don't love to do it. Like, like I said, our advisors, um, we have a, a, a team nationally that can come to your office and, and sit down with you. And what I always say is, look, this is not stuff that you love, but we love it. We can come while you're still with patients. If you throw all your policies on, on a table somewhere, we can come in and, and prepare for our meeting and take, make sure that we're really effective when we have our time with you. And then just say, this is a great one. Keep this. This one probably, you have a little bit of a hole here. Here's this. And just go through and give you a, a nice comprehensive review um, and do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. So, um, you know, I think the best thing to do is to go to our website, um, which is www.treloaronline.com. And there's an advisor finder. So you can just put your zip code in and, and you'll find the advisor that's, that's local to you that you can schedule right there. And they'll come out, reach out to you and set schedule a time to meet with you. And then, of course, just give us a phone call. Uh, 800-345-6040. We still have our old toll-free number uh, that we've had for forever. And, uh, you know, we'll be sure to make sure that we make time for you.
Perfect. Sean, I appreciate you staying late at the office. I know you're Eastern time and, and I'm keeping you in a dinner and everything. So I appreciate you taking the time, shedding some light on things. And uh, I, I enjoyed going over some of this stuff because I, I nerd out about numbing, you know, money, insurance, coverages, the practice management side of things. So thank you for taking some time and, um, and having this conversation with me. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to do it. And, you know, we really appreciate the opportunity to serve you. We love working with, with uh, Pietri Dennis. And uh, it's just such a great career and such a great future. And we're proud to partner with you guys. So thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Sean, I hope you have a great night. And um, hopefully we can meet up in person at uh, an AAPD event or at sometime in the future. I'd love to, to buy a beer in person sometime. Awesome. I'll take you up on that. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz, on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.